as soon as you get that letter from the medical board, you need the lawyer up. You don't go to somebody who does wills, trusts, and estates to do your malpractice case. This is a great example of what you have said in the past. If you don't read these notes in the ER, you'll be reading them on the stand. All right, boys and girls, it's the October 2018 issue of Risk Management Monthly. And I'll tell you right now, Rick, I can't do the Walter Winchell uh, intro, which is good, you know, good evening, America and all ships at sea, because he had a he had a uh, tele uh, telegraph uh, machine going behind him. But this is News Flash Central on August 18th, 2018, a neurosurgeon got got his comeuppance. And I want to talk about this case for a second, because somebody's going to do this and make a dumbass decision. His name is John Henry Schneider. And John Henry Schneider uh, came before Judge Susan Waters, this the U.S. District Court in Billings, Montana. Now, he was involved in a case, Monaco uh, versus Schneider, uh, and... After he was involved in the case and before and and before monies had been dispensed, uh, he went into bankruptcy. Well, that's good, except he lied to the bankruptcy court about where his money is was, and he didn't claim that he had that money and he moved funds before a plaintiff could get after his excess money. Now, let me just tell you, when you've got when it's gone to federal court for fraud in a bankruptcy case, it's your butt. They've got you. And uh, not only did he lose the malpractice case, but the judge initially was going to give him two years in prison for hiding assets. So all of you out there, when you get sued, think about this. You don't, after you're sued, start moving assets. You know, you got to pay your monthly bills and all that kind of stuff. That's not what they're talking about here. He hits uh, an extra $300,000 offshore, and he moved his house into some sort of trust. And the house is worth $2 bucks. He did all kinds of things. Which, as far as the judge was concerned, she'd have taken it out and shot him. Well, somehow this guy, um, uh, he's a neurosurgeon, convinced everybody that, and this is the funniest line in the whole thing. The judge, he told the judge he was going to reform his life and be and become a conflict resolution counselor that's because neurosurgeons are known for being so kind and generous and tender <laughs> and the judge bought this so he avoided jail time they did take his money and uh after he got run out of uh out of uh montana billings montana uh, this guy had gone before the judgment came down and took a job. Where can you always get a job in America if you need one? VA. The VA hospitals. Hey, system. listen, I didn't know that. I just kind of out of the blue. Well, let me just tell you, he'd gone to the VA hospital system in Iowa City, and even they have now decided to throw him off the medical staff. So what did we learn from this? Being a jerk neurosurgeon, uh, you guess I guess somebody will believe you, and you get away with this kind of crap. He didn't do any hard jail time, and uh, the the news release had comments from the family, and they're incensed uh, because number one, he didn't have enough money and enough insurance money to pay the judgment, and he does it, it, it lied about his assets. They are still. They still want him to do hard time, and there's a bunch of uh, bunch of legal shenanigans going on about this. But 
warning to all of our listeners, uh, the day that piece of paper arrives, if you're going to dispose of a major asset, you get legal opinion in advance because it is a felony once you know you're under suit uh, to, to hide or to dispose of assets. So there you go is the opening shot, Rick, just to make us all happy. Hey, listen, you see every once in a while these things for asset protection, asset protection, which means basically you give us money and we'll set up some bank accounts in the, uh, in, and actually in Panama with all of the other rich guys down in Panama <laughs> who've done right, that, exactly. you know, and you yeah. become part of the Panama files. But uh, the idea of asset protection, you know, it does make, it does have a certain appeal but you're also playing uh, kind of a risky business. Although you have some experience with asset protection. You you took your insurance company to some third world island off the coast of the United States. Hey, man. Hey, man. That was Barbados, man. And they loved us there. Uh, we had an official rum drink, uh, Mount Gay. Uh, we, had, we had official this and official that of the company. Be nice to the Barbadians. They're good. Hey, listen, why can't we put our assets in uh, Barbados? Is Because if you do it after you know you're being sued, um, that's a felony. The other thing is uh, people always say, well, I'm going to hold everything with my wife, joint. Uh, the truth of the matter is you're, you're 100 times more likely to lose your assets to your wife in divorce uh, than you are to a plaintiff's attorney. Actually losing money, personal money, is extremely rare. Uh, in in uh, a uh, divorce, it's the, it's the norm. It's the 98% that you're screwed out of the cash. So uh, think about yeah. that, Rick. Welcome to California. Uh, <laughs> but you're right. We've done, over the years, uh, papers that basically say, they don't want your house. They just want the limits of your policy kind of thing. They don't want to uh, go uh, and cripple you. They just want the easy money. Well, and particularly if you're a bad doctor, they want you to continue practicing so you're continuously growing more lawsuits. <laughs> An endowment. <laughs> An endowment for the plaintiff's bar, absolutely. All right, Rick, you got something for us? Jump in. Actually, I do. I have a paper that I've never seen this paper before. I've often thought about the, uh, the concept here. It's entitled Medical Malpractice Trends, Errors in Automated Speech Recognition. Wow, what a great concept. Uh, <laughs> this was in a journal that none of you have ever seen. And if you had not subscribed to Risk Management Monthly, you would be totally befuddled because you have never never heard of this concept here of that there's legalities here. This is I didn't, uh, even, know, I didn't even know this society existed, Rick, until you put up put up this paper. This is from the Journal of Medical Systems, which uh, you all get the July 9th, 2018 issue. Uh, they reviewed a, a national database involving both commercial and captive insurance companies, looking at claims from bo both the hospital side and the clinician side. It involved about 400 hospitals and 165,000 clinicians. And uh, they went back three decades, and they reviewed 51,800 claims. So a lot, a lot of claims. Yes. Yeah, though this is real. And then they used what... Uh, it sounded like a very sophisticated system to review these claims to try to uh, find what claims had anything to do with automated speech recognition, which, you know, I would envision that might have been a little a little hard to do. But they did it, at least to their satisfaction. And uh, they found nine cases. <laughs> this is nine cases, Greg, out of 51,800. Nine. Yes. Um Two-thirds of the patients were outpatients. That, uh, see, that's very misleading. He said, oh, two-thirds, two-thirds. What were we talking about? Six people, for crying out loud. So yeah. you can always use statistics to, to kind of make uh, a, a basis on uh, 100 rather than really what it is. We can say 66% were yes. outpatients, otherwise six. In any case, 
Four of those uh, nine patients involved surgical treatment, unnecessary or improper performance. So that basically, I think, excludes emergency medicine, don't you think? You know? In m- most cases, yes. All right, so that, take four out of those nine away. Three involved diagnoses, delayed or incorrect. Well, I think that we are probably in the delayed or incorrect diagnosis business, so uh, that may apply to us. One involved the improper performance of a procedure, uh, again, I don't think that would really involve us, to tell you the truth. Of these nine, I'm going to give them three. Three. Three out of that's 51,800 cases. <laughs> you you sound like Dick Clark. I'm going to give it a 98 because I like the beat. Go ahead, Dick. <laughs> um, some of these patients were harmed substantially. Three of the nine, death or severe impairment. One had a temporary insignificant injury and should not have gotten in, involved in a lawsuit in the first place. Uh, most of these cases tend to occur when, as you might guess, uh, electronic uh, records became and speech recognition became more popular and more prevalent after, you know, around 2009. In no case was the speech recognition technology the direct cause of the patient's harm. And no, that's one. That's easily understood. Here's the other thing, Rick. Whenever you look back over three decades, uh, you think there may have been some improvement in speech recognition in that period of time. That's going to be one of the multiple reasons that this paper is just a a waste of paper. (laughs) I want to make make a case which is kind of just the opposite of what they're they're claiming here. So um, – they cited in their paper two prior studies, Greg, both from 2016, indicating that the only, that only about one in ten errors are clinically significant, and the majority of the errors would not change the meaning of the clinical document, which we've contended in the past. And the fact of the matter is, is that this error that may occur is just one of a series of errors involved in a patient getting a mistake happening. It was like the it was not the only reason. Uh, that a, a the person got harmed. It was an element of why they got harmed. So yeah. they say, finally, in conclusion, read the dictations. Uncorrected errors could make the clinician look sloppy and make defending potentially uh, a case more difficult. And I think that that is basically crap. That's total crap. I, you know, just on the face of the total number of dictations and the total number of cases... It ain't worth it. <laughs> buy buy a little more insurance or something. The other thing is, anytime I've been involved in a case where this has happened, it's so obvious what the what the uh, machine had picked up or translated. We could figure it out in a second. And as soon as that's explained to the jury, you know, the machine heard it as this. Uh, they say, yeah, okay. I never saw it one time, Rick where it meant anything in a trial. And if you're going to take that time, first of all, no doc's going to take that time. If he said he did take that time, he's lying. Who the hell is going to go back each day and read 30 charts looking for for little mistakes of the machine? I, oh, I, no, no. I, I think there are doctors who do that. I think that they believe that this is a sacrosanct uh, endeavor and that that chart has to be pristine and that any substantial errors can get you in trouble. Yeah, I, I just think that for those doctors, if you want to spend your time that way, that's fine. If if you'd rather join me for a drink, which again is my favorite pastime, I, I think you'd be better off doing that. That's just crazy. So I, I think the conclusion of this is do not read your voice recognition dictations. Do not read it. It is a waste of your time. And uh, Greg, isn't there a defense that could be made where you say it is my, my custom and practice not to read, read these kinds of things? Absolutely. And if, if the, if the uh, plaintiff's counsel gets all huffy, uh, understand that nobody in any business with this kind of pick error pickup rate would go through it that way. They just wouldn't do it. And uh, the, the uh, doctor is not looked at, looked at as a criminal in these kinds of cases. I'm certain that if you had scribes who are recording it, there's going to be a certain number 
of misstatements. But again, if, if a suit is one in 20,000 uh, in your practice or in your life, that's a minimal number of times this is going to be at issue. Well, even if it is one in 20,000, which I think is probably not the case anymore, given the fact that lawsuits have plummeted, it might be one in 40,000. I haven't seen any recent numbers on that. But even if that is the case, how many of those cases are going to in any way involved a, a little screw up on a uh, computer recognized uh, dictation? Yeah. The other thing is, as you pointed out, it's never the one thing that causes the lawsuit. It's a series of things, and it's unlikely that a word, a, free, a phrase, a comma, a hesitation, a dash mark actually changes whether you screwed up on the case. Yeah, so hopefully those of you who are subscribers and who actually review your records because you think it's important, uh, please stop, stop. You're wasting, we're burning up too much time as it is with these electronic medical records. It, uh, don't do it. Stop. It's okay. And, yeah, and, well, and I, I can I, tell I, you, I, this is not just my opinion. We know an MDJD who's involved in a major group who says the same thing. I didn't want to get involved in getting him quoted, but th this is just the logical extension of what this paper is saying is it's no freaking big deal. And can you envision reading all of that crap? Nobody else reads it. I can tell you the only thing that they want to <laughs> know, the only thing that they want to know in your medical record is what did you think was wrong? And what did you do? We did an x-ray. We did a C-spine. We did a, we gave antibiotics. That's what we did. That's all they care about. Yeah. By the, by the way, while we're, uh, while we're on the, uh, the listenership, uh, we did a case a couple of months ago, and I'm sorry that this kicked off when I go places and when I talk to people, they want to take me out and shoot me. And I said, look, don't pick on the messenger here. And this is the Sarita Kelman uh, versus New York City Health and Hospital Corporation. This was the lady who went home by cab with her ankle injury, getting out of the cab with her crutches, uh, went down to the pavement and, uh, and broke her arm. Well, as you remember, Rick, uh, this was an $850,000 decision against the New York hospitals. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with New York, there's lots of hospitals in New York, but 10 of them are owned by the city. Uh, and uh, they did the usual sorts of things. Uh, they gave her her crutches for her ankle. They gave her a paper, the tear-off sheet, blah, 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 blah. But she sued them for not providing an escort home for her. I mean, who the, who the hell and what hospital does that? She sued them because uh, when she came in initially, like four hours earlier, she'd gotten a pain shot, and maybe that affected her judgment. I mean, uh, I, I know you don't like to hear this out there, fans. Uh, we don't like it. I think it's an aberrant kind of decision. Uh, and so uh, no more nasty letters, uh, no, more no more throwing things at me when I'm at social events. Sorry about this, but it did happen. Rick, well, there's probably comments? a litany of reasons that they can, you know, be mean to you and throw things at you. This is just, you'd like to cross <laughs> this one off the list. Yes, yes. You know, there's still I the mean, uh, other yeah. eight. There, yeah, there are plenty of reasons to hate me, but just not that one. So when we get any more information on the Kelman case, uh, we'll be uh, <laughs> we'll be very happy to. Well, tell you. it would be great if this was uh, overturned, but we'll probably never find that out. But I do think, honestly, uh, we take the ability of elderly people to use crutches. Uh, I think we're a little too, uh, cavalier on that kind of stuff. They can barely get along without, uh, you know, when their legs are okay. And so, and I, I must admit, I don't know how old this person was, but I intuit that they were uh, on the elderly side. So I do think that we need to be careful 
for people who can't walk. I can tell you that falls in the elderly are a major concern. Many people are very afraid of falling. They, their balance is not as good as it used to be. Their muscle strength is not as good as it used to be. And uh, ground-level falls are a serious concern with the elderly, and they can do serious damage, as you all know. So I think you got to be really kind of careful about assessing whether this person can use crutches uh, properly or not. Or maybe they need a walker or, you know, some kind of um, transportation to get them home. Call a relative or something like that. Yeah, I think that's probably okay. By the way, any more hate mail on this subject gets addressed to Rick Fukada, <laughs> and not to me. Hey, listen, all of the all of the people who send in stuff, it goes to uh, Colleen in our office. And Colleen, if it's got your name on it, she can subject. She, it, it just goes in the trash, a little trash can at the bottom of the thing there. <laughs> of course, that trash can is overflowing right now. Yeah, but that's that's kind of the way it is. Go ahead. Right, what do you want to do? You want to do uh, the next one? Um, or you want to do a case, or do you have anything in mind? Well, I got I got one thing I want to do here. Hold on, I want to read from our from our listenership, and they've done some uh, they've done some really good work this month, and I and I, I deserves uh, commenting about um, this uh, person who I have not gotten permission to use the name yet. Um, I was hoping you could give your thoughts on informed consents as it pertains to TPA for ischemic stroke. I work at a tertiary care teaching hospital, uh, so the city will stay out of this, with a comprehensive stroke service. The neurology residents evaluate all stroke patients with the emergency medicine team whenever a situation comes up where the patient's ability to consent to TPA is in question, i.e. aphasia, confusion, family not present, etc., the neurology attendings, who are not physically present, will often contend that, and here's the phrase that they've got in quotation, TPA is standard of care so you don't need consent. Now, wait a minute. A spinal tap is... uh, is state of care. We get consent. If we're going to take your appendix out, taking that out is still standard of care, and we still get consent. In fact, I, I remember it was two months ago we made the comment about uh, a Pennsylvania decision where they said the doctor needed to get consent, not the assistant and not the nurse and, and nobody else. So I think consent is still an issue. The other thing is we're taking a casual view of something which has a 1 in 19 chance of causing bleeding into your head. I'm not sure why these neurology attendings believe this, but I want to see them prove it. Well, you know, this has been going on for a long time now. Um, And it, frankly, infuriates me. It infuriates me. I think that the idea that reasonable people would come to the conclusion that we don't need to ask consent to give this when the examples that you just gave are so blatant. And in fact, I'd rather take the risk of having my appendix out than taking this stuff in my head. So uh, I think that I think it is absurd. And I would love to see a case where a person is harmed as a result of TPA and no consent was requested because of this ridiculous idea that it is standard of care which has got nothing to do with consent and i'd love to see them go after this concept because i think there are lots and lots and lots of stroke centers around the country who have adopted this total bullshit position yeah i and and i don't know where we get away with that uh this listener uh, is obviously very educated very smart he's got the exact right numbers that came out of the two trials which were positive, and you know, only in those two trials, which were anterior circulation trials, uh, is there any reason to believe that it works? And it's funny now we've decided to let it slop over into posterior fossa, defended by no study that goes head to head with doing nothing. 
And I think that that's dangerous stuff. You know, the last three physicians I know of, friends of mine, who've had posterior fossa strokes, none of them have taken the stuff, and they all got better to a very great degree. So I think to think that this is standard of care and you don't have to ask anybody, I think that's cavalier. You know, I understand when you're bleeding out and you've lost consciousness, we do a lot of things with the assumption that the reasonable adult would want their life saved. Uh, that's not the case here. And I think you I think our listener has got the exact right concerns as to what's going to happen. Here, here's my bottom line. And Rick, I'll give you your two seconds. Fight this at your institution. At least tell somebody the, the reasonable truth. If they elect to take it, fine. If they don't, that's fine. But to say that everybody who comes in, it's like, oh, if they've got a cut and it's uh, been over 10 years, we give them a tetanus shot. Okay, I guess I kind of understand that, but I sure as hell don't understand it for a drug that can do you serious harm. Rick, you get your two minutes on this. Well, you know, I'd love to have the hospital's attorney be made aware of what's going on in the neurology part, the department and the emergency department. I can't envision an attorney whose job is to protect that hospital and those doctors would say, yeah, go ahead, guys. There is no precedent for this. And the fact of the matter is, is that it may be perceived that a stroke patient is substantially compromised, uh, but that doesn't mean that they can't listen, think, and, and, and respond. And that doesn't mean that family members can't be asked and think and respond. And my other concern, frankly, is that the these zealots are going to say, well, we're going to give him this clot-busting drug, giving no fair and balanced, here's the good, here's the bad, here's the alternatives if we don't do this. The whole thing that goes along with um, proper informed consent. That's right. You need to be like Fox News, fair and balance. And they're not going to be fair and balanced. And that's, I think, I think one of the things that ASEP may have done or could have done or could do is to come up with a fact sheet. Here's the facts. Here is something that we can either verbally explain to people or give the people so that they, they understand or graphically can show them, you know, what the risks and what, what the benefits are so that people with, you know, who can't read all that well, just visually can see it. It's like, that would be a that would be a substantial service, but the problem is people don't do it because there is this bias at these stroke centers that oh, we don't want to give them all this information. What are you kidding? Yeah, no, no we're, we're, we we they don't, they're not, they're not sophisticated enough to understand this stuff. No, 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 let's give it. It is bad, and it, you know it is also compounded by all the things that happen on TV where you see people given this drug. The first episode of Code Black, the, the first commercial episode of Code Black had a case where they gave TPA in the emergency department to a stroke patient and miraculously, virtually in front of them, this person uh, was was cured. Uh, that's not the way it works. That's not the way it happens. That's not the way it happened in the NINDS trials. It was like the next day kind of thing for crying out loud. <laughs> yeah, what, you, they treated, what they <clears throat> treated was a TIA, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, I this infuriates me. Um, because it seems to be so obviously wrong. Yeah. All right. Before before your blood pressure needs yeah. uh, nitroprusside. Yeah. Nitroprusside. All right. Uh, we've got uh, someone who's written in a repeat uh, fan, by the way, but he quickly says, "Do not use my name." Uh, that sounds like uh, he doesn't want this being spread around. But he says we got a great applicant for our emergency department who was cleared by the local hospital. Someone at a higher level above the hospital decided that he could not work in our department. It was a complaint from a nurse who had filed 20 years earlier. It was one of those complaints about him being too angry about something, an anger management problem 20 years ago. Um, you have mentioned previously that these complaints are easy to file and they remain a problem for too long. 
He has no track record the past 20 years of any such problems. We are uncertain uh, exactly what the strategy should be for convincing the higher level administrators to back off. The one-sided political correctness is becoming nauseating. Rick, go ahead. Well, you know, it floors me that this group, uh, well, I, that, that this person who wrote did not detail why the uh, administration wants this person not to work when, in fact, he may have or she may have great credentials, tremendous experience, and good ER docs are hard to find, uh, especially if you're in Keokuk. Yes. Now, now here my, comes the letters from Keokuk now. Yeah, yeah, but in, yeah. But in any yeah, case, yeah. You, you know, you just can't sit there and say, well, the administration doesn't want him because he had a complaint 20 years ago. Where are rational people? Are these the p same people who want the TPA given without consent? It's like, well, what is the explanation uh, for your from your administration? Maybe they know something else. Maybe there are other issues going on here. These are This is not the behavior of rational people. So I think there's more to it than meets the eye here. But and, even and there may be, but what we know is he can get a job at the VA hospital in Iowa City, Iowa, which is very close to Keokuk. So here we go, Rick. I mean, we've solved this guy's problem, at least the employment problem. That doesn't help the hospital's problem of buying. And let me tell you what's now happening. Um there were 16 independent hospitals in the northern part of Michigan. They are now under one umbrella. So things get passed at the local level, at the executive committee, and they have to go on to this central place for final approval. There may be somebody up there who does not understand what the hiring problems are at the local level. You know, it could have been somebody who was a vice president of nursing someplace and has now decided, oh, they smarted off to a nurse. We'll take care of them. Uh, whenever you centralize power like this, it's very difficult to make intelligent local coverage decisions. And uh, having been in that business a long time, you know, the, we, when we need somebody, you need somebody. And, uh, you know, even if he, uh, he or she has some little problems here and there, better to work on those problems than to have an exhausted staff or nobody covering. Well, you know, one of the things that can happen is uh, some righteous person could file a complaint with the medical board. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later. Yeah. And now it is a part of your official record. Have you ever been sanctioned by the medical board? Uh, the medical board could just say, we got a letter about you being mean to a person. Please don't do that anymore. I mean, that, that, could, that could be the end of it. it. It doesn't have to go any further than that. But when you're filling out applications uh, uh, and you need to be very painfully truthful about any interactions with the medical board, that might be, that might be an issue. I, I, I think that uh, this person on the face of it, is getting a very unfair shake. And I think our, our writer is asking, well, what can we do about it? First of all, uh, I would think this, this, this reflects to me an emergency to group that doesn't seem to have a lot of, of power and influence with the administration. Uh, they, they don't seem to ha have a lot of um, ability to step forward. Because I was director for a long time, and basically... Yeah, they have the ability to say, we don't want this doctor working here. But they generally do it because here's a list of the reasons. And 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 you try to defend the doctor, but when the reasons be, uh, become such that the hospital feels it's in some jeopardy, either socially or medically, then they have the right of saying, we don't want this person working here. And I think that is that is their final uh, card, but you need that to expect that they're going to be fair. Rick, uh, I would also point out that of the, there are now about 3,900 emergency departments in the United States. There are three groups which have control of greater than 5,000 
hundred contracts. Uh, my hospital, which we started uh, years ago, forty some years ago, uh, the current uh, or people over the years uh, traded their stock, sold to younger members, that sort of thing, and then they sold out into the big public market. When there's somebody who runs 500 of these things, the individual attention they can pay is is greatly diminished. It is a it's a different world than you and I came up in, and I think we I think we have to deal with that. Uh, Rick, you want to do this uh, Medscape article uh, dated July 24th? Yeah, I do. Um, we've talked about this in the past about how nasty medical boards can be and how low their threshold is for what they think to be, you know, saving the population of the state and where you live from bad doctors. So this is uh, entitled the dangers of a medical board investigation, how to protect yourself. And uh, this is a long article actually in Medscape. And uh, I, I just distilled it down to what I thought would be the, the bullet points because we have talked about this before, but uh, you really have to take these people very, very, very seriously. Um, so, number one, any complaint against you, uh, they say you may never even know who the accuser is, particularly if this uh, is a, a, can see a perceived as a kind of nuisance kind of case, like you were mean to a patient or you made somebody wait too long or something like, like that. Uh, they don't have to tell you who that person was. But it, if it gets more nasty, then in fairness, they probably will. But um, anybody can report you. Anybody, the pharmacist, doesn't matter, patients or anybody. Um, they may just write you a letter saying, we have received a complaint regarding uh, something or other that is pretty minor. And they just want you to let you know that somebody out there, and I think that that's a kind of a good idea. It, it puts you on warning, at least, that somebody's got got an eye out for you where, where you're working. Uh, typically these medical boards, 4,000 disciplinary actions occur annually, 4,000 uh, as more specifically, like in 2015, it was 4,091. And wh what was the result of those? 655 were put on probation. You don't want that. About 600 had their licenses suspended. You certainly don't want that and about 250 had their licenses revoked. All of the rest probably got, you know, letters of reprimand and those kinds of things that, that doesn't constrict their practices or something like that. But these guys uh, are not messing around. And one of the things that they advise right in the beginning, as soon as you get that letter from the medical, medical board, you need the lawyer up. Not with a lawyer, that uh, uh, the family lawyer who does, uh, uh, you know, marriages and, uh, and, uh, property. You need a, a lawyer who knows about, uh, labor laws and, and administration. Listen, I, uh, I don't want to necessarily push our, uh, our people who help us out all the time, but a couple of months ago we had Mark Calvert on and that's pretty much what Mark does in the state of Texas. He represents physicians at the board. Why is this important? Well, number one, a, an attorney who goes to the medical board on a regular basis gets to know those people. He knows what makes them mad. He knows what they want to hear. He knows how to set up um, uh, systems to make the system work. He knows what they want to hear about this doctor or that doctor or what he's going to do or how he's going to ask for a Mia Copa, Mia Maxima Copa. And uh, I, th I think that Mark's point when he was on the show is exactly that. Just like there are some doctors who do brain cancers and some who do deliver babies, uh, there are lawyers specialized just as much as we do. And believe me, you don't go to somebody who does wills, trusts, and estates to do your malpractice case. Uh, you don't go to somebody who does slips and falls to represent you at the medical board. I, it would be a waste of your time and money not to get a pro. And every state has people who do this, and, and they're good at it. 
The other thing is some states require it uh, more than others. The state of Illinois is vindictive to doctors. The state of New York is vindictive to doctors. State of Montana, I'm not even sure they have a medical board there. They want doctors so badly. So uh, pay attention. Take it seriously. Doctors always get offended uh, when they get a letter like this, like, uh, oh, how dare they do this to me? Don't take it that way. Here's, here's your chance uh, to do this right. They also point out that there are some things that are recurring uh, problems with the medical board. Uh, this is the thing about like not having a proper medical record with a history and physical in people for whom you've prescribed drugs. And so that basically can be your, your family members, the uh, nurses in the hallway, uh, those kinds of things. They view that as a breach of the standard where everybody gets a proper history and physical, and that is documented. And if you don't do that, you are off the bell-shaped curve substantially. And if there's a problem on top of it, now that there, somebody's made a complaint to the medical board, that must have been there's a bad outcome. Uh, so now they're probably involved in, in potentially a malpractice case and a medical board case. By the way, there are three things which they've got zero tolerance for anymore. Everything has changed. If it has something to do with a narcotic, I don't even care whether it's you wrote for 25 tablets, whether you wrote for 15, whether you, don't go this alone. Get somebody in there quickly, because I'll tell you, the board is under so much pressure for oh, bad doctors who hooked people on drugs. Get right on top of this, because it's not going to go well. The second one is uh, sexual liberties with a patient. And, uh, and we were advised by one of the attorneys that even though they dropped the case or the complaint, it was a young woman who said that the physician had touched her breasts. Um, well, he did, was doing an examination of the heart and lungs. She came in with cough. Do you listen to the anterior part, the posterior part, et cetera, et cetera. But he gave the physician great advice. He says, never do an exam on a patient like this again without a chaperone. He said, you don't want even the possibility of an indiscretion being brought up again. And I, th I think that's pretty, that's pretty much the same. And the third is stay away from treating family members who you have not seen. You don't know what they have. And the medical board doesn't have much respect for that. If you decide to give a mother uh, two extra bottles of amoxicillin for kids who are sick at home, that's not the way to do it, and I don't know any state where the medical board takes that side of kind of stuff uh, lightly. So th those are just some, some kickoff points. And your group, by the way, should always be informed what's going on so they can help protect you from being in any of those situations. You know, the, uh, yeah, that's one of the things that they, uh, one of the bullet points. Uh, but, you know, obviously... Don't tell me, Greg, that you haven't prescribed for your uh, your family. Don't tell me that, and uh, I, and I've done it too. We just uh, take the risk. We assume the risk. The risk is uh, is small. The benefit is high. We, we do it. We do things like that all the time. No, Don't no, my, no. My kids are going to take my money, but they they expect it when I die. They don't want it tied up in lawsuits. I'll tell you that right now. They also say, don't do stupid things on Facebook. And, and you know, everybody thinks, okay, well, you're pasting pictures and all this other stuff. No, no. They're saying, don't do things like telling the world that you are in a crappy mood or you had a bad week or something like that would reflects uh, something that may, you have a, you have a bad case. And there's the Facebook thing saying, I haven't gotten any sleep this week. I partied a lot yesterday, those kinds of things. They will use that against you as you would fully expect they would. Yeah, absolutely. And when they ask you uh, when you're hiring uh, for a new job, you know, has there been a complaint? Not was there a decision to take your license or suspension? They will now ask, has there been a 
cl- uh, a case filed with either the county medical society, which you're all involved in to some degree or the other, or the uh, state board of medicine. Don't lie on those things. If there's been a letter, you've got to acknowledge it because, again, God help you if they find that you didn't reveal that at that time. Uh, the other thing is uh, you've, you've got to at least put forward the fact that you're taking this sort of thing seriously. The Facebook thing is now when residents are coming to our group uh, to get in here, they have to do a check for uh, every year, every month, basically, of their life. We've got to find out where they were. If there's a six-month gap or a year gap or a this gap or a that gap, they're going to trace that down. They're going to go on Facebook, if they can, and find you. If you've made really stupid things, if you've got a picture at the at the medical fraternity drunk, you know, with a drink in your hand and, and uh, pissing on someone, believe me, it can make a difference. And this is a competitive job market. You don't want any of that stuff out there, and you don't want any of it that the state medical board can find. You know, one of the things that you mentioned was uh, being very, very truthful on your uh, um, application. There, there was an example given of a person who 20 years prior in his residency had to repeat a semester, they said. Now, I, don't, I don't know that you have semesters in residency, but that's what they said anyway. Yeah. And, and uh, they... The applicant, the question was, um, have you ever been uh, in any way sanctioned by the, any of these boards? That, 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 and one of the parts of that, were, ever, were you ever put on academic probation? And this guy, 20 years ago, was. But he put no because it was like maybe he didn't even remember that he was or whatever. But the fact is, once they found out that he had said no to when, when the answer should have been yes, they did not give his. They did not give him his medical uh, uh, license in that state. Not only that, all the other medical boards in which he has a license are informed that uh, this is the case. So don't be in any way untruthful on your applications. All right, Rick. You want to talk about Chuck? You know, Chuck Pilcher is our friend who does uh, medical malpractice insights. In the uh, this is a free. Uh, newsletter comes out once a month, gives cases, recommendations, and uh, in the show notes, we'll have the uh, link to how to get to Chuck's site so that you can enroll. He, uh, in the July issue, he did a couple of cases. One of them was a fellow male, adult male, who came in with a sudden onset of flank pain. Kidneys are always diagnosed and vital signs were normal except for a pulse of 105. A UA was positive for nitrites and had 15 white cells. The long and short of this case is that the person came back in uh, two days. They were septic, uh, had a tube put into the uh, kidney to drain the pussy stuff out, and he died shortly thereafter. Very, very bad outcome. But what is the question here? The question, Chuck asserts, that if a UA shows sufficient evidence of concurrent infection in the presence of ureteral obstruction, antibiotics should be prescribed and the patient admitted. My sense is that is a bit of a stretch because uh, this is a sudden onset of flank pain. We had a mechanical issue here. We got this stone blocking up the ureter immediately. He goes to the emergency department because of the severe pain and what is the likelihood that this is now precipitating an infection? Was there some kind of thing prior? Uh, was what is there some predisposing factor? Does a positive nitrite uh, mean that you have a, a urine infection? Does 15 WCs mean that you have a urine infection? Is it standard of care to prescribe antibiotics to people who have, you know, these ma- marginal urines uh, who have acute kidney infections? I think that um, it. I think that is a, is a bit of a stretch. It turns out that in this case, the plaintiff's attorney was not able to find any witness, any expert who had said that giving out antibiotics was the standard of care. 
Yeah, but I but I think it is still important. Um, quite frankly, if you've had five previous uh, kidney stones and you're looking pretty good, uh, I don't shoot a new CT on you. Um, but we do look at the urine. And if it does look infected, then we'll we'll start something and contact their their urologist urologist about the follow up. Um, I'm not one of those guys that thinks that every recurrent stone needs a CT. The urine is useful because if that is full of pus, I look at it differently, Rick, than somebody who's got you know four red cells and uh, two white cells and nothing else. I, I think it is a different situation. Well, I think that this is kind of like a uh, more borderline situation. And I, and I, I don't like to use the word always um, because I think that th- this person have, well, you know, more ha- history would have helped for sure. Yes, yes. Um, and so it's kind of hard to get too polar about this. There's another case that he did Um an apparent slip and fall in an, in an adult male at work. And the EMS was called and this guy had fallen on his face and his face was all bloodied. And it was, a, it was, uh, it was the injuries were really kind of the focus of the case. And the, uh, they took him to the ED by ambulance and the, uh, treatment consisted primarily of treating the facial injuries and the patient was discharged. Uh, later that day, patient had a massive stroke and a very bad outcome in that he had chronic tube feeding in a nursing home for a long time thereafter. There was a substantial out-of-court settlement. And the key issues here is that had you gone back and taken a look at the chart, there was stuff in the EMS note that suggested that there might have been some focal weakness to, uh, or some facial droop kind of things. And there was also, in the nurse's notes, similar kinds of very soft suggestions that at least at one time, some kind of motor <laughs> deficits were occurring. And this is a great example of if what you have said in the past. If you don't read these notes in the ER, you'll be reading them on the stand. Exactly. You know, and if a nurse comes up to you and says, you know, I don't think he's quite right, um, it is. This is the twelve-year-old. This is an adult, and I've I've had a couple of those where everybody was concerned about Grandma's injury. Nobody's concerned why she went down. And uh, sometimes, if you pull a family member aside, say, "Oh yeah, every time she uh, goes around a corner quickly, she loses her balance," or uh, you know, sometimes she'll she'll uh, fall hit her head and jerk her arms or her legs. You know, there can be other things happening than just the cut. I think the cut in most of these people is the least of your problems. Uh, Falling, and and again, I wouldn't have thought much about this 20 years ago. Now that I've lost some of my balance and I look for the handrails on the stairs and all that sort of thing, I believe it is real and we're probably not aggressive enough about this. Well, Chuck makes the point, and I think it's 100% that um, if you're slipping and falling, well, it, was the floor wet? Uh, it, were you uh, in the supermarket make, trying to make a claim again for, a, <coughs> for, for an injury when you put the water right. on the floor? Uh, yes. So he says, as you did, did you got to go a little further say, well, what happened? Was there water on the floor or did you get lightheaded or you need to pursue this further that slip and fall is basically really a kind of like a, a, a conjectural diagnosis unless it can be confirmed by the, you know, the patient saying, Oh yeah, it, they did just waxed the floor and I, I, I lost my footing and yeah, you'll feel much better then. Or I'm not really sure what happened. I just found myself on the floor. Totally different story. Did they have totally a seizure? Totally different. Seizure, yep. you know? Anyway, that was, I think that you got to read the, uh, the nurse's notes, even though they may be very difficult to find in your electronic medical record. Um, and EMS notes, you got to read those too. Because uh, uh, you can see what happened. And I must admit, 
these are just the little tidbits of these cases. I mean, what kind of an exam would have been done by the by the doctor? Did he do some kind of pseudo neurologic exam? Did he note that the patient was walking f- well and without any difficulty or and you know those kinds of things? Those are not in in, in the chart. No, no, they almost never are. All right, three quick updates. Uh, these, by the way, come to us courtesy of the uh, Horty Springer newsletter. Uh, which uh, came out uh, in August. One of them, uh, this, fe- this is Robinson v. East Carolina University. A federal court in North Carolina rejected a physician's attempt to force an insurance company and hospital to void a medical pr- malpractice payment report to the National Practitioner Data Bank. Hello? Of course, the court cited with reporting i mean he he claims of course it could be harmful to him in the future it could be this or that that's what it's supposed to be that's why they came up with a data bank is so that that people in the future can query this and know what's going on bottom line is here's another nail if you're named in a malpractice action and there's money paid i think there's a an amount but if there's something paid on your behalf, assume you will be reported. So again, if you were going to work someplace else, you know, buck up here and, and do it. Uh, by the way, the the in Wisconsin next case, Clark versus Milwaukee oh, City. Hold on one one second, there, Chief. Didn't, All right, what, wasn't the uh, amount? Thirty thousand dollars, and and that would be the trigger. But I think that that went away. Um, I think it did go away, Rick. Uh, we'll have to consult Doctor. Any of you doctor lawyers out there know the uh, what the um, what the threshold is dollar wise for reporting to the practitioner data bank? Yeah, and That'd this this is still a huge fight. We don't have this resolved. Uh, some hospitals where the doctors are employees just report the hospital's payment on the case and not the names of the doctors. Yeah, those are like residents. Uh, they do that. They, residents hide under this all the time. Yeah, but they do it with the attendings as well if the attendings are employees of the hospital. Now, um, this fight goes on and on as to who's going to get reported, but understand that uh, that this can happen, and in, in it really is... Uh, important that this that this remains a clean, neat system. If it's to have any person at all, uh, uh, function at all. Let me give you one more here because uh, we're we're starting to run out of time. No, oh, I got an but, email I want to do after you're done. There, we're okay. okay. All right, Cinnamon versus Mount Sinai Hospital. This is a hospital not liable for physicians' alleged failure to get informed consent. Uh, if the doctor is not an employee of the hospital. This took place at Mount Sinai in New York. I've lectured there, great hospital. Uh, But what happened was when the physician, the surgeon, got in to his procedure, he changed exactly what he was going to do and had not prepped the patient on on that this may be an option. The patient then sued both the doctor and the hospital. And basically the court said, the doctor you can go after, but not the hospital, because how would the hospital know that midway, somewhere in the midst of this procedure, and this is not the agent of the hospital, it's a a private doc who has privileges at the hospital, But the hospital is not in a position to, at that moment, stop the uh, procedure, reinform the patient, that sort of thing. So unless the the doctor works for the hospital, the hospital has no responsibility for getting a new informed consent sheet signed. There you go. So those are your three? Yeah. All right. Rick, is it time? Um. Yeah, you have you have uh, something to tell us about wine or something like that. I do. 
How many seconds do I, how many microseconds do I have? Actually, here? you have six minutes, which is an eternity here. It so is do you have an any eternity. More, yeah, listen, do you have any more cases or something valuable? Um, yeah, I do, but I, I'm not going to rush a case. Oh, God. And, uh, and listen, uh, this, is, this is a good topic this month in, in, in uh, Wine of the Month. Now, I don't drink all, wine. I, I understand that, Rick. We're not going to tell them what you do drink, but uh, uh, I'm right. sure you make all it right. in jugs somewhere. Uh, right. In any event, uh, this is the uh, uh, the time of uh, year, the uh, spring weddings. Well, now there's fall weddings, and uh, my wife and I are uh, hosting a wedding up at our summer place. Did you rent uh, it out for your, this wedding? We don't rent it out, Rick. This is a family friend who's getting married. But as uh, I was clearly one night, I'd probably had too many, but I offered to buy the champagne for the wedding. And the um, and so I have been recently sampling champagnes. Andre? Uh, well, <laughs> you know what, Andre? But uh, in real real champagnes, but I'm, I'm going to pass along a couple of, of thoughts and ideas. The first one is, if you actually have the money to get uh, Dom Perignon, be my guest. But there's nobody at a wedding who actually cares that much about how good the champagne tastes. They don't, with these waiters coming around and passing out these glasses, they have no idea what swill is in there. <laughs> they have absolutely none. So I'm going to give you two that I found that I think are really excellent for the money. A, a good bottle of Dom Perignon is going at 70 or 80. If it's I, Bolognese, I think it's more than that. Yeah, well, well, in fact, I just looked today, Rick, coming in here, uh, and a uh, depends on the year, but a, a Bollinger's are about um, $110 a bottle. That's a lot of money. There's a great one, which I have been drinking for years, and we've retried again. And that's something called Frusigne. It's F-R-E-I-X-E-N-E-T. It's Spanish. It's a Codorn, uh, a Codorn Negra Brut. And, um, well, today I was able to buy it um, at a case price at about $12.59 a bottle. And Don't you know your- what? Don't let the people know. Let them think it's expensive stuff, you know? Well, of course, you let them think it's expensive stuff. But if you've got to buy one, uh, a champagne that is really decent, the other one comes out of uh, California, the Corbels, uh, the Corbel Brew and the uh, Corbel Extra extra Brew, Extra Dry. Uh, and again, you're looking at about 12 to $13 a bottle. And I defy you at a wedding in that kind of situation to be able to tell the difference between that and the, um, and the expensive French stuff. So uh, there's, there's just a couple of suggestions uh, for your, your uh, summer weddings, uh, your fall weddings and uh, see what you think. Well, listen, we did uh, for a while really kind of get into champagne uh, many, many years ago. And it was the Schramsberg. Mm-hmm. Schramsberg is a California champagne, and it's 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 now probably around twenty dollars a bottle, but it's uh it's it's a pretty nifty champagne. Let me tell you about my wedding. I was married in nineteen seventy, and uh, we had no money. I had just gotten out of my uh, medical school and uh, was about to start my my internship. So it was in the in that period between the two, and uh, so. My mother borrowed $1,000 from her um, credit union, $1,000 from her credit union. And for that, we had a wedding in the church hall, the Ukrainian church hall. And uh, she made at least 200 large, large paper flowers that were hanging from the ceiling. And she decorated every one of those uh, uh, she made. And our choices for drinking were, you had two choices. Andre Champagne, yes, or beer. Beer. That was, right. that was it. There was no hard stuff. Uh, that there was no official hard stuff there, 
and and certainly no no other regular wine. And that wedding cost us one thousand dollars in nineteen seventy. So per year you've been together, it it ain't been a bad bargain, really, Rick. No, I, I, I no, it wasn't. It was uh, it was a good investment. Uh, no, I spent a lot of time in my youth, uh, age uh, in, in high school and college, playing at uh, Polish weddings around Detroit. I filled in with Harry Zarnecki and the Polka Dots. Uh, and, of course, we were sometimes the third band at the wedding. We were the third Polka band to show up. We showed up at four in the morning. Uh, we did the four to eight shift. Uh, but, uh, you know, those people are just as married as people who spend a hundred thousand dollars on a wedding. We know, we know people, you and I know people who have spent in excess of $200,000 oh, on yes, this wedding. We do. Yes. Yes, we do very, very Let's, closely. We know these people and they're yes, still trying to recover. They're still recovering. Exactly right. All right, Rick. That's it. That's uh, that's uh, Risk Management Monthly for the month of October. Uh, always good to uh, talk with you. And to our listeners, we'll catch up with you next month. And, yeah, I want to remind you, please send us some stuff. You know, give us complaints. Give us cases. Give us situations that uh, you are struggling with or that you would like our uninformed opinion about. Uh, I think they're on the uh, – newsletter thing it tells you how to get a hold of our support actually that's called colleen support yes. at ccme.org and in any case i enjoy talking with you gregory bye for now we'll talk with everybody else in november bye bye